1: You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome into MLB.com Extras, Mets edition. Mark Feinsand recently sat down with Mets general manager Sandy Alderson to talk about Alderson's career path from Oakland to New York and the building of the Mets into a World Series contender, including the growth of that young rotation. Here's Mark.
2: So we'll start with with your career aspect. What was your first job in baseball and how did that come about? First job in baseball was as
3: uh, general counsel of the Oakland A's. Um, started there in uh, November of or October of 1981. Um, I was a uh, an associate attorney at a law firm in San Francisco, and one of the partners and his family purchased the Oakland A's from Charlie Finley, and. Um, I had worked closely with that uh, partner uh, and did a lot of the legal work in connection with uh, the purchase of the team and it, about a year later, that was in 1980, and about a year later I went over there full-time. So I think I was the first full-time general counsel in baseball, which shows you how far the game has come, because right now we have uh, we have four attorneys
2: with the Mets. So. As an attorney, you probably baseball operations probably did not seem to be no. something you thought about as a future. How did that?
3: How did that? Well, in those days,
2: you? the general counsel didn't have a lot to do. <laughs> uh,
3: uh, you know, the, the the business was a lot less complex uh, than it is today, and um, so I had the opportunity to travel around, see minor league teams, do various things. But um, the real opportunity came when Billy Martin who was our manager at the time, and who thought he was our general manager, um, was let go, and um, so we hired a new manager, but there was kind of a void there, and um, so I was given that responsibility without any experience or real knowledge uh, of the game or of the position, but it kind of grew from there. How overwhelming was that? didn't feel overwhelming at the time but uh, because I was working closely with uh, Roy Eisenhart, who was the president and, and uh, the partner. Uh, so we kind of felt our way through it. Um, but uh, I didn't really feel any great
2: pressure because I figured I could always go back to being a lawyer if it didn't right. work out. So, <laughs> with, a, with a background that didn't start in baseball, are there executives from other businesses or other um, areas that, that have influenced you? in your baseball career through the years? Well, I didn't have any real business experience uh, before
3: joining the A's. I was a lawyer for five years. I've been in the Marine Corps. So I, probably my Marine experience was as informative as anything, although we certainly didn't run the Oakland A's uh, <laughs> like the United States Marines. But um, just you know, basic leadership principles and organization and discipline. And uh, um, it certainly helped to you know, have a have had a working relationship with uh, with Roy for the previous five years at the law firm. So, um, uh, I think that um, these jobs are as much about judgment as about scouting ability or um, you know understanding of analytics. Um, because the real key is figuring out a way to put all that together and make a reasonable decision. Um, so even though in those days I didn't have any experience and <laughs> very little knowledge, um, you know, I think Roy and Wally Haas, who was there, also uh, had confidence in my judgment. But that was
2: kind of it. <laughs> so. Right. Uh, during your time in Oakland, you guys were very successful, made the three straight World Series, one in 89. Mm-hmm. How has the job changed most from that time in Oakland to your time here in New York?
3: Well, the stakes are a lot higher because the money is a lot greater and um, (coughs) you know, um, the margin for error can be smaller. Um, You know, a mistake in those days cost you a few hundred thousand. A mistake these days costs you a few million. Um, And those, those mistakes can add up. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a uh, this is a business where mistakes can be made. I mean, it's players make it, players don't. Players perform, players don't. Um, the outcome is not always within your control. Um, so, what we try to do is focus on the day-to-day process. Um, and hope that we're increasing the chances of success by being systematic and organized and process-oriented.
2: Uh, sabermetrics analytics have become obviously a huge mm-hmm. influence in the game over the past 10, 15, 20 mm-hmm. years. Yeah. You were there sort of at the beginning of it right. uh, with Billy and you know, I know Muddy Ball, everybody points to that, but you guys were doing it you know, before then. My question was, I guess, how did you first discover some of these analytics and what, what gave you the belief that they were so important?
3: Well, it goes back to my inexperience, uh, at the outset of my baseball career. Uh, because I wasn't a scout, I didn't really have a way of evaluating players, a traditional way of evaluating players. Um, I was pretty open to alternatives that were maybe more accessible to me. Um, and that's where analytics came in. The, uh, actually what got me started was listening to a radio piece on National Public Radio by someone who was local in the Bay Area who uh, had written a book, a small book, uh, called The Sinister First Baseman. His name was Eric Walker. And this was about the time that uh, Bill James was writing as well. Um, So I was intrigued by it. It seemed to be that some of these, um, the, the you know the thesis the importance of on-base percentage and things like that um, seem to be borne out mathematically, and and also was consistent with my sort of um, kind of parochial view of baseball, which is hey I love I love home runs anyway. <laughs> Who doesn't, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, I recall the, the you know, the uh, uh, advocate for the three-run homer was um, uh, uh, the manager for the Orioles. Um, Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver, and the advocate for small ball was Gene Mock, who played, you know, managed Philadelphia there. and So, anyway, um, the Weaver approach appealed to me emotionally or as a fan right but it you know the analytics seemed to prove out and that was that was probably
2: when that started that was probably 1982 83 you've talked about the importance of analytics and the importance of scouting do mm-hmm. you think league wide scouting has become less important to teams than it has in the past or do you just think maybe it's as important but analytics have caught up to be it's a good
3: question i mean you, you know you look at the The general managers who've been appointed over the last few years, it would seem that analytics surpassed subjective scouting because those who are in decision-making positions uh, have more of an analytical background. Um, I think at the same time though there's a growing recognition that um, the numbers themselves don't tell the whole whole story. Um, And by the way, analytics are themselves subjective in many ways. Because what analytics really do is collate data and then interpret the data. And when you interpret the data, you inject your own subjective point of view, because you have to weigh things. So all data isn't equal. And so different clubs, the same same is true, different clubs have different views of how that data ought to be used. so, <clears throat> um, nothing is ever totally subjective or totally objective, um, but sometimes we don't admit, admit that to ourselves. So, um, and the difficult thing is, is melding the two into something, uh, a coherent
2: uh, approach that, that uh, incorporates both. Uh, Paul Podesto worked for you, I believe, in San Diego mm-hmm. and New York. Yeah, He's been the chief strategy officer for the Cleveland Browns mm-hmm. now for the past 14 months. Do you think this could become a trend in the future where executives from one sport move to another? I or do think you think it, he's a unique no, case? No, I think it could be because I
3: think that um, that the analytics are agnostic with respect to sport. Now, that doesn't mean that you can move sort of seamlessly from one to the other and and not recognize that there are going to be shortcomings. And the fact that Paul was in baseball for as many years as he was means that he wasn't in football for as many years as he was. But sometimes, as I said, with respect to how I got involved with analytics, being unencumbered by, you know, conventional wisdom and, and uh, uh, Years of experience can actually be a liberating thing and lead to the kinds of breakthroughs that um, can occur. So, uh, I definitely think that this could be, because the the common thread is the common thread is the uh, analysis and uh, a way of approaching decision making. It's not, you know, the uniform or the playing rules. Right.
2: Or, I mean. Fundamentally, uh, MLB StatCast has introduced some new metrics mm-hmm. into the baseball world in the past couple of years. How do you view those? And do you think the fact that they're so available to fans has changed the way fans look at the game a little bit? Well, I think their availability has definitely
3: changed uh, the way some fans look at the game. I think it's also changed the way some teams look at the game. And I think the fact that they are available to fans generally, but also to the more analytically minded fans, I mean it's like for public access software or whatever they call that, um, um, you see some very interesting analysis coming out of, um, you know, publicly available um, sources. Which gets back to a point that somebody made a few weeks ago in an article that I read um, that there's a very short half-life for new ideas, that the competitive balance, that the competitive advantage that one gets from recognizing a new idea is <clears throat> very short. <clears throat> because all this information is so available in the public domain, um, there are people out there who are smart as we are or smarter, um, you know, come to the same conclusions
2: based on that availability of information. Because of that, do you think teams are always looking for the next thing? No. Well, some teams are. Um, I can
3: tell you what, we don't spend a lot of time chasing the next big idea. We spend a lot of time trying to execute on the last big idea Um, again if you assume that um, new ideas that the confidentiality uh, of new ideas and insights and and edges is relatively short because of public access because of uh, uh, executive movement among teams um, um, unless it's such a fundamental idea that you know that <clears throat> um, you can't afford to be a few months behind the curve uh, I think you're better you're better off trying to execute your strategy. I think execution is more important than um, than uh, I
2: don't know what the right word is ideation or something <laughs> <laughs> uh. Tony La Russa is widely credited for creating the so-called one-inning closer yeah. with Eckersley uh-huh. during your tenure in Oakland. Yeah. Having watched the way teams used their bullpen last October, uh, do you sense any shift in the way managers are going to use their relievers going forward, or do you think that that's a specific situation where it's a shortened time period, you have off days built in, and, and you can really only do something like that in the postseason?
3: I think it's tougher to do in the regular season. Um, You might see it bleed over into the last few weeks of a season. Um, uh, But I think the importance of what happened in the World Series is that it did cause people to think differently about how um, relief pitching is used. And so while we might not see a duplication of what happened in in the World Series, I think you might see some innovation And I think you saw some of that in the regular season. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Cleveland using Andrew Miller earlier in the game. So I think that, and those ideas have been around a while. Um, But I think once you have someone um, successfully employ, um, you know, a new idea, um,
2: even if it's a small variation, people will tend to copy it. You worked for MLB in between GM stints most uh, recently 2010 when you worked on addressing a lot of the issues in the Dominican yeah. regarding age falsification, the use of PEDs. Mm-hmm. Do you believe those issues have become less prevalent there than they were five or ten years ago? Uh,
3: yes, I do. And I think that uh, uh, that's in large part to the to the uh, proactivity of Major League Baseball over the last few years. I'm, I'm not going back to 2010, but it, just in my experience here with the Mets. Um Their proactivity with respect to um, prospects unsigned by major league clubs, doing drug testing earlier uh, at a period when those players are unsigned, doing background checks um, to confirm identity before those players are signed, um, I think has eliminated some of those problems and created more of a level playing field for for those players in the Dominican or Venezuela who are competing for those contracts and those dollars and those opportunities. So, uh, yeah, no, I do think, you know, no system is ever going to be perfect, but I do think that uh, they've made big, big gains. And by the way, some aspects of the system in in, in Dominican and Venezuela are important to preserve. Um, You know, the whole issue of Buscones and those who, um, you know, train young young, uh, prospects. They're an important part of the player pipeline. We just have to make sure that that part of the pipeline is, um, well, it is, is overseen. Because, um, um, in fact, I think there are aspects of that system that we need to import back to the United States. Um. Uh, with respect, in, in, in the case of travel teams and things of that sort for youth players, where, you know, there's a little more regulation
2: uh, about how players are used and those kinds of things. Having run teams in Oakland and San Diego, what are the biggest differences between doing so in those markets and in New York? Um... Well, the similarities between Oakland and New
3: York stop at the, fa- at, at the fact that they're both two-team markets. Uh, but, um, you know, the media coverage, the, the, uh, the fan bases are very different. The fan base in New York is large, knowledgeable, and um, demanding in some ways, but surprisingly patient in our case, uh, you know, for the first few years that I was here um fan bases in San Diego and, and Oakland are not as large they are smaller cadres of really enthusiastic uh, fans um, the media requirements are a little bit different but you know they're major league cities and um, you know putting a good team on the field is ultimately the goal and uh, so just just that fact uh, you know creates pressure to uh, um try to be competitive, and uh, oddly enough, I probably, uh, you know, my relationship with the media in Oakland was, I think, very good over the time I was there. My relationship with the media in San Diego was not very good. I learned from that, and I think, so I tried to put it into use in New York. So, um, you know, they're different environments,
2: uh, but uh, you know, similar demands. In the September 2011 interview with Newsday, you said of your first year as the Mets GM, quote, in building a team for the long haul, my goal this season was to try to change the perception of where it's headed. Safe to say that's happened, but when do you think that turned? Um, it's funny. I think that uh,
3: it, it took some time. First of all, um, uh, you have to be able to articulate a strategy, and then you have to be able to stick to it. Um, but eventually, um, that kind of strategy or idea is um, punctuated by certain events. And as I go back, I think the, uh, I think like several events, but uh, one of them was probably um, the trade for. Uh, Zach Wheeler that we made, um, we signed David Wright, um, you know, we made the trade, we traded R.A. Dickey for some play. There were these seminal events that take place that kind of, uh, define the, a strategy or idea. So, I mean, they come up from time to time, but when you connect them together, they, they create an impression. But I think the key thing for us was, um, There's no question, for the first four and a half years that I was here, we were selling an idea, you know, that this is the direction we were taking, this is how we were going to do it. And uh, as I said, I think Mets fans were very patient, but I think they did buy into um, where we were headed, and part of the the process of buying in was the fact that, that fans today know so much more about farm systems than they did before. And so there was a belief in, you know, what was happening over here in the farm system, even though things weren't going particularly well at the Major League level, but because fans um, sort of knowledge of their team is, is greater today than it was probably 20 or 30 years ago, uh, it allowed the fans to uh, kind of embrace the whole strategy and not ignore what was going on at the Major League level. but at least recognize that
2: it was maybe a necessary phase. Do you see something similar going on on the other side of town now? I mean, can you, can you watch what they're doing with the Yankees right now and, and see the same sort of process happening? Um, yeah, to some extent. Um,
3: you know, I think, so the, the whole idea we were promoting, the strategy was, you know, acquire young talent, uh, create payroll flexibility, and then try to be as competitive as possible without violating, with, without compromising goals one and two. You know, so peers they're kind of doing the same thing. You know, they, it's not like they're cashing it in and not trying to be competitive, right. but but clearly they're trying to acquire talent and they're they're trying to set up more payroll flexibility,
2: and um, they seem to be doing a pretty good job of. It. You guys spent a lot of money this winter re-signing mm-hmm. Cespedes, Neil Walker, and others, but you're essentially returning the same team as you did last season. Was that the plan going into the offseason? Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the plan to bring back the same
3: team, but we, we liked our players. And um, uh, you know, we ended up basically re-signing a number of free agents, Cespedes, Blevins, Salas, um, uh, Neil Walker, um, could have been a free agent. Uh, we liked each of those players. We do put a premium on um, their ability to play and have success in a place like New York. We put a premium on um, character and what players represent in the clubhouse. Uh, so we knew these players um, and um, and had a need at those positions, and that's how it worked out. Um, it might not have. I mean, we, we signed Blevins and Salas very late. Um, um, you know, so, uh, and Jay Bruce, I failed to mention that we exercised his option. So I wouldn't say that was the, the goal uh, going into the offseason, but um,
2: that's how it worked out. Your rotation obviously is strength. Starters are going to start making some more money at some point mm-hmm. here uh, and eventually hitting free agency. I think Harvey's the first one. With that in mind, do you look at the next couple of years as sort of a your your best window to win a World Series? Uh, not necessarily, no. I mean, I think there are ways to stay within that window uh,
3: with an ever-changing roster of players, if necessary. Um, I mean, we kept our players together um, this season. Um, you know, we'd like to keep players together going forward. But, you know... Again, with the fans in mind, fans like stability, but they like change too. You know, they the, what's the you know what's the new thing? Shiny um, new toy. Yeah, people don't drive the same car for ten years. They you know they like a little change once in a while. Um, and I I recognize that, and I I do too. Um, but sometimes you stick with it because um, that's kind of how it turns out, not because that's how it's drawn up necessarily. Um, but we do have you know, we have a lot of free agents next year, so it's very possible that things will change
2: a little bit, but in the meantime we got we got a good group together. So much gets made of your four big starters, but a few teams make it through a season with the same five man rotation. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, how important is the depth that you have with Wheeler, Lugo, Zellman, you know, to the yeah. success this season?
3: No, the depth is very important. And it's the kind of depth that we didn't expect to have last season. Uh, you know, when Lugo and Gazellman came up, they pitched really better than we could have expected. Um, so we were fortunate in that regard. And in some ways, the fact that we had those injuries last year has put us in a better position this year because um, of the experience they had last year, and the fact that we are legitimately, you know, seven deep at this point, um, subject to whatever begins to happen over the course of the season. Um, so um, I feel good about that, and as you know, so we're looking around for eight and nine um, uh, because we realize that you know things will happen over the course of the season.
1: If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand.
2: For people who haven't had the pleasure of attending the Baseball Writers Dinner the past few years, I can attest that you're a funny guy. (laughs) Do you need to have a sense of humor to succeed in this kind of job? I think it helps. I think it takes the edge off of things. I think
3: if you can respond with a little humor, it takes the edge off of the... uh, difficulties that, you know, sometimes teams face, individuals face. I think that uh, if you can soften that with some humor. Uh, you have to be careful though, because humor usually, well, can't often be very pointed, and you got to be careful about um, how pointed your humor becomes.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Your decision to, to bring Jose Reyes back was controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. How difficult was that, and did the fact that the Yankees had a similar situation by dealing for Chapman and seeing how that played out, did that serve as a guide at all to knowing how this could go? Well, um, I mean, we knew the well, the Chapman
3: situation was controversial, um, and uh, so we expected some controversy. But I think in our case, um, what made it easier for us was the fact that Jose had been with the Mets. Uh, He'd grown up with the Mets and been part of the organization for, I don't know, a decade maybe. Um, uh, So we felt we knew him pretty well. Um, Could trust him. And um, you know, had confidence not only in in his sort of continuing uh, ability, but more importantly, you know, his confidence that Um, he was, uh, contrite and, um, confidence that that was an incident that wouldn't happen again,
2: so. Last year you told the New York Post that you've, quote, never felt that winning the World Series is the only definition of a successful season. Mm -hmm. Given where you guys have been the last two years, do you think anything short of a championship this year would make for a successful season?
3: Well, we've never been to the playoffs as an organization three years in a row, so um, does that define success? No, but it's, it would be a milestone, I guess. Um, no, I would also say that everybody who in the game, other than the World Series champion, goes home unhappy. I mean, there's no, you know, unfortunately that's that's the way it is. On the other hand, you, you know, you have to, um, you know, last year, for example, we. Our, our playoff season lasted three hours but given some of the adversity that we had to overcome as a team I think you know we felt pretty good about what happened over the course of the year yeah. not that you know we felt gee this was a success or uh, you know anybody's gonna hold a parade for the Mets 2016 but um, I guess I don't subscribe to the notion that look if you know win the World Series then you know it was a blankety-blank year um, that's a little i don't know what the right word is but uh, uh, that would be a statement
2: uh, would be maybe a little too self important for uh from for my taste your contract's up at the end of this year have you thought about how much longer you want to do this I haven't thought about how much longer I want to do it um, Cancer diagnosis and the treatment, everything affect your mindset about how long um, you see yourself doing it, or want to do it, or have the desire to do it. It's a good question. Um,
3: you know, a lot of people at my age say, "Well, they want to, re- they want to, they want to retire so they can spend more time with their grandchildren." Well, one of the reasons I took this job is because my grandchildren live in New Jersey, so <laughs> I get to see them. Um, and they probably see just about enough of me
2: is my guess <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm going to have to search for another reason to retire You guided the A's of three straight pennants how much more difficult is that to accomplish the way the game is structured today? Yeah, no, it's you know
3: there, there are more steps involved uh, and as a result I think there's a little more randomness in what happens in a one game playoff and a five game playoff and then, then a you know, there are just several more steps uh, back in those days. Um, there were there was a league championship series there were two divisions, two winners, and then you go to the World Series. So um, it's a multi-step process now, which makes it, I think, more difficult.
2: Um, hindsight's obviously 2020. What was it like? To watch Daniel Murphy leave and have the type of season he did, not only for another team but for a division rival, and was there any point last season where you second-guessed yourself for not bringing him back? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no.
3: First of all, Daniel's a great guy, and um, um, so I'm happy for for you know his success last year. Uh, obviously, we would not have gone to the World Series in 2015 without him. Um, and had the success we did uh, in the playoffs that year without him. Um, you know, anytime somebody does well um, uh, for someone else, you think about how it might have been different. Um, I think the only thing that uh, you know uh, kind of assuaged uh, the sense of loss was uh, the fact that Neil Walker played so well for us. So, um, you know, it was good for him, and and, uh, we were happy for him. And um, I think we take pride in the fact that it was something that happened here in 2015 that led to that, and uh, um, you know, had we thought that could be sustained, we might have made a different decision.
2: But. how encouraged have you been this spring by what you've seen from the guys coming back from injury? Uh, you know, with, uh, with
3: one exception, that being David Wright, I think that we've been very encouraged. Uh, I think we knew that David was going to take a while. Um, when you have that length of inactivity from a neck injury that requires just basically rest, um, some of that physical Athleticism is probably going to be lost and has to be rebuilt, and uh, so I think we expected this was going to be a slow process. But other than that, I think we've been very happy with um, you know what we've seen so far. Uh, Degrom pitched well his first time out. Harvey was pain free and you know had uh, decent velocity and good command. So for his first time out, so uh, you know I think we're pretty happy with where things are. Lucas Duda is another one that's kind of coming along a little slowly, but by and large we're we're happy with where things are.
2: Speaking of David Wright, what does he mean to this team on and off the
3: field? Well, he's meant a a tremendous amount to the team, uh, to the organization, uh, and actually, you know, to me personally, because um, he's the captain of the team, he's one of the most accomplished players in Mets history. He's an outstanding individual, so we talk about the stability that fans enjoy and, and um, appreciate. You know, he personifies that. Um, he, he has been the New York Mets for a long period of time. Um, in my case, you know, we talked about selling an idea, and his endorsement of that idea when he signed the contract, not just by signing the contract, but by verbally expressing confidence in the direction we were headed, I think, had a tremendous impact on our fan base and uh, gave us some additional time to improve. So, you know, as I say, from for an organizational standpoint, from a personal standpoint, I think David has been a tremendous uh,
2: asset. Uh, like you, Terry's entering the final year, his contract, mm-hmm. Do you ever worry about how lame duck status could impact a manager in either or both his game strategy or the way players respond to him? No. Um,
3: you know Terry's at the point where he's expressed some uh, consideration of retiring. Um, you know, so people ask him that question. They ask me that question. Doesn't doesn't really bother me. I assume it doesn't bother him. Um, And um, I think if players have respect for their leader, it doesn't matter whether um, they're viewed as short-term or long-term. I mean, it can have some impact, but ultimately it's about the quality of the leadership and not the tenure,
2: so. Uh, Some teams in your division made some moves to upgrade this winter. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself ever scoreboard-watching in the off-season? when you see teams in your division making moves, and does that in turn create pressure for you to make moves? Um, <clears throat> definitely scoreboard watch
3: in that regard, but I don't think it puts pressure on us to uh, to respond. I think you have to be aware of what your competition is, but I think you also you have to focus on uh, your own organization and strategy and the quality of your own team and um, not worry about, um, not worry so much about anybody else. I mean, it's like schoolwork, you know, you got to study to get a decent grade. It really doesn't matter whether somebody else gets a B or a C. It's not going to help you
2: get an A. So, right. Who do you think is the most underrated player on the Mets in terms of how it affects the team day to day?
3: Probably a couple of players would come immediately to mind. Um, one would be Cabrera, because, you know, in D- David's absence over the last year, I think Cabrera has become a, um, um, a key figure in the clubhouse. Um, I don't think Curtis Granderson gets as much credit for his um, sort of quiet. Lead by example leadership that he provides. Um,
2: so, you know, I, I would I would those are the two that come immediately to mind. People often talk about whether New York's a Yankees town or a Mets town. Do you care about that, or is that just something for talk radio to talk about? Or, and have you seen the city sway a little more no, in I, the last couple of years? No, I. I find that
3: important. I mean. Um, I kind of view the Yankee-Mets thing the way I view the, view the Giants-A's thing. Um, and you know, in San Francisco, in, in the Bay Area, the default team was always going to be the Giants, because they were there first, primarily, and um, you know, it's San Francisco and not, um, you know, the East Bay. Uh, but as long as the team played well, if, as long as Oakland played well, and depending on what you know the Giants were doing, um, we could be we could be the predominant team, and we were for quite a few years. Um, but the Giants were always going to be the default team. Uh, I kind of view it the same way in New York. Uh, we got to play well for a long time to change the default. Um, but that's part of our mission. <laughs> so, uh, and I do think things have shifted a little bit, um, but again, you know, how permanent it is, <laughs> I think it's all a function of, uh, there there, you know, there are core fans on both sides, but, um, you know, you're talking about overcoming family biases as much as anything, you know, my father was this, my father was that, his grandfather was this, his grandfather was that, and so when I say, you know, a team that's been around for 100 years versus a team that's been around for, you know, 55,
2: it's kind of what happens. Right. So. You were part of a Bay Bridge World Series. Mm-hmm. What would Yankee Mets be like for you? I'd be big, but uh, I'd sure want to win. <laughs> Can you ever imagine running a team in New York for twenty years the way Cashman has? Uh, it can't be a coincidence that the photos of him from his first few years there was a lot more hair, right? No, I can't imagine doing it for twenty years in New York. Oh
3: well, you know I'm being linear here now. I'm sure. Being, you know, thirteen? No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's uh, testimony to his testament to his. Success and uh, is survivability in a
2: in a uh, demanding media market. How have your views or philosophies towards the game changed from the beginning of your executive career to now? Uh, I don't
3: know if I, my views have changed. I've learned a tremendous amount. I tell you, just in the last six years. Um, from people around me, from people, I mean, from from others in the organization, as well as just the experience. I mean, I feel much more capable today than I did in 2011. Um, whether I am or not, I don't know, but, um, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, so I'm now the oldest GM, probably, I'm pretty sure I am. Um, Which requires, you know, requires some adjustment on my part, um, in terms of communication and uh, building relationships with others who are a little bit younger than I am. You know, when I first started, I was the young one. I was uh, the outsider, um, and now I'm the one that's been around the longest. But I think that, in either case, you have to purposefully reach out and purposefully reach out and um, you know, make sure that that you are creating and maintaining relationships and, um, rethinking your approach, um, to account for new ideas, new information. I mean, the biggest, the biggest change is not about, not about ideas, it's about information. There's so much more information available and trying to stay current with that and,
2: and uh, being open-minded. Is it strange for you to make calls in new business with other GMs who literally weren't born when you started in this business? I mean, the age gap is so large with some of these guys in their late 20s, or early 30s. Yeah. Is that... I have never uh, thought of it that way. Um, <laughs> sorry. But, uh... <laughs> uh
3: it's not, I don't find it strange. I just find it necessary to, to be mindful of that. Um... Uh, and respectful of—I mean, I'm just as respectful of them as I was of people who were 30 years older than I was when I was younger. I try to be—I mean, I respect their positions and their um, their control over—you know—one thirtieth of the market. So, right, yeah,
2: three left. Uh- with the season a few weeks away, what would you say right now is the Mets' biggest weakness and the biggest well, strength is probably the obvious one uh, with the rotation? What would you say is the biggest weakness that still needs to be addressed between now and opening day, Or or between now and whenever. I guess a lot of these things don't get addressed by opening day. Yeah, I'm not sure these are things that will be addressed
3: over the course of the spring, but I, you know, I'd say the biggest question mark is the bullpen just because of what's in store for Familia. Um, you know, the kinds of things we'd like to see this season, less reliance on the home run, you know, better with men in scoring position, a little higher on base percentage, those things from an offensive standpoint. And then, um, obviously, well, the rotation is a strength. You know, the the five guys have got to go out there and pitch every fifth day. So, I think that's uh,
2: something that we will only really know over time. Which was more satisfying for you, getting to your first World Series in 88 with the A's or getting there in 2015?
3: Yeah, I'd have to say 2015 because um, I was kind of a neophyte in 88, and it was like, wow. And then all of our young players said, well, but, you know, we lost in 88, we're going to be back here again. I, I didn't have any reason to think otherwise either, but it's a very hard thing to do, so... Um, but you know, last year with uh, you know what transpired at the at the trade deadline, the fact that we were behind and we played so well, and um, it was an exciting uh, final two months of the season. and it was a fi- it was an exciting series with the Dodgers, and then, I mean the whole thing was you know we kind of came not out of nowhere, but uh, it all came together in ways that it doesn't usually. So it was was satisfying, I think, to a lot of people. And, again, the fact that it had been four or five years and we have been working toward this, um, and at the very end things kind of accelerated in a positive way. So that was
2: very satisfying. Literally my last question. Okay. Uh, How important is it for you personally to to finish the job and, and win the World Series with this team? Well, look, I mean, I don't lose sleep over it, Um,
3: because again, we try to focus on the the process, the day-to-day, and improve our chances. Um, Ultimately, things happen in the ninth inning of the seventh game of the World Series, (laughs) so I don't think you get too caught up in, uh, I think people like like me recognize there are certain things they can't control.
1: Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better